0: Called challenge 2.0 it has become the rage in politics literally the politics of anger it is perhaps the one element common to all parts of the political spectrum today and not just in the United States studies show that where differences in race religion or culture were most likely to lead to intolerance those have been eclipsed now by differences in politics in this edition of challenge 2.0 when anger isn't enough We examine the genesis of the politics of anger, its costs, and ways to diffuse that anger. So we're fortunate that the three men sitting across from me have been kind enough to accept an invitation to return to Challenge 2.0, and I would like to begin by introducing you before we jump into our topic for today in anger and politics and how we might possibly move beyond that, Uh, Imam Jamal Rahman and Pastor Dave Brown and Rabbi Ted Falcon, each from the Pacific Northwest Interfaith Amigos. Thank you so much for being here again. Great, thank you for welcoming us. When we talk about anger, uh, and I show my age, but I thought back to a song that was written by Billy Joel some 40 years ago called Angry Young Man. And the lyrics include the words, he sits in a room with a lock on the door, with his maps and his medals laid out on the floor. And he likes to be known as the angry young man. He likes to be known as that. How does that describe for you the rise of anger as the defining emotion and perhaps motivation in our country today?
1: And not only is it today, but it's it's something that people have been wary of forever. There's a statement in the Talmud, uh, the great literature that followed the uh canonization of the Hebrew Bible that if you want to know whether somebody is um, reliable as a friend, see how they are when they get angry. Mm-hmm. Because there's something about anger that brings up a kind of self-righteousness that can express itself in incredibly in incredible violence and in incredibly surprising violence. You know, even with people who basically are not violent. We lose ourselves in our anger. The more conscious we are of the potential for anger, the less likely it is to overtake us. Mm -hmm. The more we think, oh no, that wouldn't happen to me, the more likely I think we are to lose ourselves in our anger, and that anger can just raise havoc.
2: One of the sources for the anger that I seem to I feel we're seeing around us, and, and it's not terribly new, except maybe it's more accented now, is people get angry when they don't feel they have any control and when they feel powerless. People get angry at themselves and turn it inward when they can't do things that they maybe once did or want to do and they get frustrated and angry at themselves. <laughs> And I think people are, some people look at what's happening in the world around them and they feel there's no place where they could impact reality. They, they have no control over their destiny. And they, they buy that convenient myth or lie and it makes them angry at the world. Um, and, and I see that that's happening a lot right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't know how to counter that except to try to help people and help myself feel empowered uh, to say, I'm not as helpless as I think I am. But there's so many messages saying you are, and and you get so angry.
3: But you might say in trying to fight extremism, for example, we ourselves might become extreme. Mm -hmm. In fighting injustice, we ourselves might become unjust. So if I have anger, and it's okay, but may I do this spiritual practice of embracing and processing that with love and compassion. Then, this fiery energy becomes transformed into vitality, uh, enthusiasm, uh, inner vigor. And one other quick point that all the traditions point out, be careful about the subtlety of righteous anger. Rumi has this poetry, he says, you know, somebody does something wrong, and the fires of hell rise up in you. You call this defense of truth, defense of religion, but you don't notice your own arrogant soul. Mm-hmm. I remember one
1: time working with uh, Swami Satchidananda in Southern California, <clears throat> and I happened to be present when he was meeting with a group of his supporters and those who were like coordinators in the area, and he was really upset, and he, he really expressed anger, and he had a tremendous energy. And when it focused on, a- on anger, it was I was just grateful that I was not in the <laughs> line of that. And I asked him about it later, and he said, I carry anger with me in my pocket. And when it's required, I take it out. And then I put it back. You know, like, there are times when anger is, in fact, an appropriate response. Mm -hmm. And to try to pretend that it's not here is not only detrimental to our health, but not helpful in our relationship with other people.
0: Who comes to mind, and you mentioned Swami, but who comes to mind as a very creative, positive example of anger well used?
1: that's a great question I, I have to go home and study that
2: <laughs> in our era um, you know dr. King uh, was was very angry at the oppressive world in which he lived and the violence against his people um, and he expressed that anger but he didn't let the anger define him mm-hmm. and and I think that's really an important important piece of any conversation about, about anger, and we, anger, anger is an appropriate response. But if it's our defining emotion, all we become is good haters, mm-hmm. rather than learning to be good lovers. And I think, as I've said, the, my brothers have heard several times, if all we do is hate what is wrong, we learn to hate well but we need to remember to love what is right. Mm-hmm. And what Dr. King did so well is he named and was angry at oppressive structures at the fact that Sunday morning was the most segregated hour at 10:30 was the most segregated hour in America, but he also painted a vision of a time Mm-hmm. Down there, when my, you know, the son of slaveholders and, you know, and the sons of slaves will play together on the holy mountain. So he painted a, a vision of hope while expressing anger at the things that hurt people and, and held them together. He didn't just live by anger or just put a happy, smiling face on the situation. Mm-hmm. He lived with the tension.
3: You know, I'd like to give the example in contemporary times of Mahatma Gandhi. Mm-hmm. There's a true story of Gandhi who,
2: he had the audacity
3: in those days of severe apartheid, to sit with the white privileged passengers in the first-class compartment. And, of course, he was physically and forcibly ejected, thrown onto the platform, and he was was actually quite hurt physically. Mm -hmm. It was a cold night, he was shivering, and he was filled with anger, thoughts of revenge and retaliation. He was a lawyer. But then the better part of him said, you know, Uh, and he was thinking about all the verses from the Hindu scriptures. He said, I can be a better person. And he did spiritual practices to embrace his anger with compassion and love. He became transformed. Then he one day gathered his friends uh, together and said, I want to make one boast. He said, you know, I've reached the point because of the work I have done on myself that no matter how oppressive the oppressor is, I feel angry But the edge has gone away. Mm. I can no longer feel that uh, impulse to retaliate with vengeance. And he said, the reason I'm saying this is, believe me, this is in your power. You can do it. If I, an ordinary person with such hate and anger, was able to do that and transform it, believe me, you can do it too.
1: In the issue of uh, Palestine and Israel, What's very well documented are the groups of parents who have lost children, you know, Palestinians who have lost their children to IDF, to the Israeli Defense Forces, Israelis who have lost children to suicide bombers or to terrorists. Groups of parents who get together, you know, to meet each other. And sure, everybody's got anger, but there's something way deeper that unites them. And they know that simply feeding the anger is going to cause more killing and more destruction. So it's not pretending the anger away. Mm -hmm. It's allowing it to be there, but reaching deeper into an understanding and appreciation that what we share is our pain, you know, what we share is our loss. And we need to work through the differences to create a world that can reflect.
0: The question then is, how do we work that into political discussion right now? There was a recent Pew Research study that indicated before where gaps between people of different races, genders, or uh, education levels would generally contribute the most to intolerance. And they said those have now been shoved down the ranking by differences determined by what political party you belong to. How did that come to be and is that genuine a reflection of anger or is it anger being utilized to some end?
1: I think it's that political parties have defined themselves by what they're against more than what they're for. Mm -hmm. Looking at it from a distance, it looks like the primary objective is to prove the other people are wrong Mm -hmm. and you are right and the urge to a greater bipartisanship is dwarfed by the urge to beat the other team. I mean we're now like an intramural or professional sport (laughs) called politics. Yes, we have differences, but we appreciate each other as human beings. Yes, we have differences, but we are under the same constitution. Yes, we have differences, but we're sitting in the same chamber. I mean, come on. But no, it's. I wonder what constitution are people pledging to uphold? It seems to be the constitution of their political party affiliation.
2: And I think part of this... I'm not
1: angry or anything.
0: <laughs>
2: it was just out
1: of
0: the pocket. <laughs>
2: and, and I think the way we demonize and create the other. What, what I've been trying to do for myself is, again, learning a bit from Dr. King's vision of another time, is I've been trying to focus on issues, mm-hmm. not personalities. And I've been trying to stay away... Um, even you know the current American president to there, there's lots of caricature and lots of, of jokes that are all around me in circles, I, and I'm I'm trying not to revel in them too much. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to keep focus on these are the issues. This is what's happening that's hurting people. This is the vision of where I, I'd like to see us go. And take it away from calling somebody a fool or some, you know, and mocking the, the being of a person and keeping focused instead on the common good and what we want to see our children grow into. Mm-hmm. And that starts to, to maybe, st- the practice um, that that Brother Ted was saying of the dehumanization that allows us to say things politically about a person rather than stand up passionately for an issue. Mm
3: -hmm. You know I think all the research shows and there's a lot of work on this particular topic you've brought up shows that really as human beings we have such an innate need uh, to belong to have a sense of identity So about Democrats and Republicans, the research shows that this gap, this uh, chasm, uh, is not so much issue-oriented, it is Mm identity-oriented. There are commonalities, actually, if you say about immigration, uh, about race, uh, about economics. But unfortunately, the politics in this country has become so polluted and infested with money Mm It has brought about this, you might say, um, attachment to our lower self. And then there's so much of negative campaigning, mudslinging. When you combine all of that, the sense of identity has become really polarized. So a key seems to be really to come back to basics, to really connect with the other on a human level.
0: Each of you are responding as informed by your faith and as faith leaders, we've seen examples where you have people both from what we might call the conservative end of the faith spectrum and those on the liberal end of the faith spectrum point to, for example, natural disasters and say there that's divine judgment. What does that say to you about the state of our faith, our faiths, and its ability to lead us out of this wilderness of division? It says
1: That a lot of people can get confused very quickly. Mm -hmm. I went to college in a small town in uh, Southern Ohio, Athens, Ohio, Mm -hmm. um, at Ohio University, and there was a time when a tornado came through town, and it just damaged houses on one side of the street, and in the Athens Messenger, the newspaper, um, came a... a letter to the editor that announced that clearly those people on that side of the street were evil and they were being punished <laughs> no really? really oh yeah it's an interesting way of perceiving reality which i think is very dangerous mm-hmm. i i i worry even when something good happens to somebody and they say thank god and i wonder what about the people for whom mm-hmm. good things didn't happen mm-hmm. what did God is God punishing them for something? I mean, we get into this kind of strange reality, um, which is again extremely divisive, and we wind up blaming the victims. We wind up blaming those those who are hurt and it's another one of those truths of convenience right. as, mm-hmm. as brother Jamal mentioned, you know it we utilize statements of belief like that when it's convenient to Mm -hmm. us, not when it's inconvenient. And there, I mean, some of the statements about this terrible thing happened because there are gay people, this terrible thing happened because there are Jews, this terrible thing happened because there are African-Americans. I mean, Mm -hmm. the things that are not connected at all, but to get into people's mind, somewhere to blame. So that you somehow think if we could just get rid of those people, everything would be okay. Mm-hmm. And whew, it, the, the world and the universe, they don't work that way. It was Scholz and Nietzsche who said, mm-hmm. if only we could get the bad people, find them and send them away somewhere. And he <laughs> says, but alas, the line between good and evil flows through every human heart. And who mm-hmm. would tear out a chunk of their own heart? Like we're in
2: this together. One thing that all three of our traditions share is a belief in in the word humility and I would say a, appropriate humility mm-hmm. often people um understand humility as not feeling good about themselves mm-hmm. or putting themselves down or understating their gifts and and that's really not, and an, I mean, people should be proud of their identity and proud of what they're bringing into the world and shouldn't apologize for it. Those those are all signs of the divine that are being brought into the world through them, those those wonderful gifts. But humility, as I understand it, is remembering who you are and who you are not. Mm-hmm. No one can pre- have, it's preposterous for, for me or... For for any of us to say unequivocally, I know what the divine is doing and I'm pointing at it and this is it, Mm -hmm. that's way beyond my pay grade. That's way beyond who I am. And to remember who I'm not, I am not God. So when you start saying that natural natural disaster is divine retribution, how can you speak unequivocally for God? None of us can, and learning that humility gives us a common place to meet, and often that humility is lacking most, perhaps, in some of our religious leaders. So much of what I see surfacing in American religion is religious polarization around social agenda, mm-hmm. not around doing the deep work of spiritual growth and reassessing tradition and, and understanding how we can come together.
3: You know, when we say God is doing this as retribution or as a reward, uh, this is not religion speaking. Mm -hmm. This is my ego speaking. At the same time, we also have to ask this very uh, deep questions that people have asked. Why do bad things happen Mm -hmm. to good people, innocent people? We don't know. The, The real answer is silence. It's all mysterious. But there's one point I want to make about religion and faith. Religion and faith is simply a reflection of my personal consciousness. Mm-hmm. When I or my tribe evolves, my religion evolves. I want to give a simple example of, you know, about the other, encountering the stranger. Over the centuries we have moved from tolerance, centuries ago considered very uh, outstanding, remarkable. From that we have moved to not only tolerance, but respect of the other. Mm-hmm who's different, but the respect can be patronizing. So now we are saying, celebrate the differences. If you really want a a pluralistic society, we're saying that look look into the religion for those universal verses that really encourage you not only to tolerate or to respect, but to celebrate the differences. Mm -hmm. This is because of the evolution of my consciousness. The book hasn't changed, but my understanding of it has changed.
0: We often hear the phrase, I'm spiritual, not religious. How does that spirituality need to evolve to bring everyone, each individual, to that place?
1: That's really been a major thrust of our work as Interfaith Amigos, um, promoting and supporting a greater awareness of the spiritual teachings in each of our traditions. And the need for spiritual practice. Spiritual practice is setting aside time to become more aware of the deeper nature of our own being, Mm -hmm. which is to say the more inclusive nature of our own being, uh, the more expansive nature of our own being. And some of the ways in each of our traditions that that is supported will be through meditation. And there's meditation in each of our traditions, and in mm-hmm. fact, in every spiritual tradition. And it's not a question of, well, whose meditation is better. It's like, that's like saying whose language is better. It's like, I will meditate focusing on a verse in Hebrew. You know, Imam Jamal might focus on a verse in uh, Arabic. Uh, Pastor Dave knows that Jesus spoke English. <laughs> um, with a New York accent. <laughs> I didn't know. Which about, part yeah. of New York? <laughs> <laughs> Manhattan. Okay. Manhattan. Um, the problem with spiritual practice is that it needs to be a practice. Um, too many of us keep looking out there for God to do something, rather than looking in here for God to do something, to open my heart, to open my consciousness, to expand my awareness. And we do what we can to
2: support Mm -hmm. people learning and practicing it. Some of it is not as Brother Ted said not to look for others to do this for you, but to take control of your own spiritual health. Mm -hmm. How do you spend your time? What are you putting into your soul, constant by media, by constant exposure to news? When are you taking time to feed your soul? And how can you do that? And for me, uh, one of the ways I encourage people to do it is uh, find a source for poetry. And start your day, perhaps, if you don't read your sacred text, maybe read a poem in the morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you could have that practice with a sacred text. You could have that with a poem. And, I mean, you could have it if you're running through, going through an art museum, to do that as spiritual practice, as you, a painting engages you, and what is this painting about? And mm-hmm. that whole, but it really, it does take the individual, taking charge and saying, I'm going to do this. It is that spiritual discipline that makes some people run because they don't like that discipline word, but you need to have the same discipline for your spirituality mm-hmm. and engaging in those practices as you do if you wanna stay physically fit or if you wanna make sure you eat that right and healthy food. So you need that spiritual discipline. And, and as I close that piece to, and have a soul friend that you'll share what your intention is, what your spiritual discipline is, and they can help perhaps you keep on track.
3: There's a wonderful verse in the Quran that says, God will not change the condition of a people unless they change what is inside of them, their inner selves. Mm -hmm. This is really about doing, what my brothers have been discussing, besides taking care of the body, which is critical, it's a temple of the soul, we have to transform our ego, transform it from a commanding master, the Muslims say, to, into a personal assistant. We have to open up our heart, as my brothers have said, to create that inner spaciousness, to embrace all the paradoxes and bewilderment of life. That's critical, that work, whether you have a religion or not. Secondly, we have to be of service. I love that phrase by Rumi, be a lamp, a lifeboat, or a ladder. And service can really feed your soul and fill you with joy. So I'll end with this beautiful quotation by uh, a Bengali poet named Tagore, who says, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and found life was service. I served, and lo, service was joy.
0: Thank you each again. And we'll look forward to doing another program and bringing together your collective thought and wisdom. So... Thank you, and thank you to all of you watching, and we hope you'll join us again for the next edition of Challenge 2.0 next week. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras is an audio by Rich McAdams, Tom
3: Butterworth, and Dean Puccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.